The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. How to dream, cowboys. Welcome back to the Westworld Fan Podcast. Today we're going to recap and review Season 2, Episode 8, entitled Kixia, directed by Uta Bracewitz and written by Carly Ray and Dan Deitz. I'm James. And I'm Ryan. And this is the Westworld Podcast. Hey, you got Dan Deitz's name right this yeah, time. Yeah, I rocked it. There's one thing you I really claimed for. It's my fantastic pronunciation of unusual words. It is. It is. I rely on you completely to announce names correctly because I, as of course, offend entire nations as I try to do. So when you didn't get Dan Deitz right the first time, I was lost in the ether. I had no idea what to do. The title, easy to say this title, that's why I like it, Kixia, is actually the Lakota word for remember, and it's fitting since most of this episode was actually in Lakota, which is a Native American language, which is fitting because most of this episode was narrated in the Native American Lakota language. It was a super bold choice, actually, to have most of this episode narrated by a key in a language that is is actually foreign to the ear when you hear it. At least for me it was, you know, but perhaps if you live close to Lakota people and that you can hear that you hear them speak it would be something that's normal to you but for me it's even like way different than hearing the japanese in when akane and sakura are talking even when in that narration was japanese too which both times they've had foreign languages this season they've used subtitles and they have had you know they've had the narration in the actual languages which is they don't have to do that so i super appreciate it this episode was written by Dan Deitz and Carly Ray. Carly Ray has written an episode earlier in this season. She did not win the Game of Thrones lottery, James. Remember when I said she was one of the people writing like a, a spinoff? Uh-huh. It got announced this week. The lottery for next showrunner of Game of Thrones spinoff 2019 or 2020 is Jane Goldman, writer of X-Men First Class, Kick-Ass, and Kingsman. She is, if if picked up, Obviously, she's just, like, making a pilot, but if it's picked up, the prequel will chronicle the world's descent from the golden age of heroes into its darkest hour, from the horrifying secrets of Westeros history to the true origin of the White Walkers, the mystery of the East, to the Starks of legend. It's not the story we think we know. This is not a Game of Thrones podcast, but it is an HBO podcast, and I felt like that was relatable. Look forward to the James and Ryan podcast of the upcoming HBO Game of Thrones spinoff. The first one, we'll have to, the moment that... Yeah, we're going to register the name right now, okay? We're just going to, we're going <laughs> to guess at what the name might be, and we're going to register 50 URLs. 
Hey, I'm ready to make 20 Gmails tonight. I won't go to sleep at all. I'll put a pot of coffee on. I'll keep making emails. Let's do this. That's right. Even if we came up with, like, Game of Thrones podcast, someone else would just come up with podcast for Game of Thrones. Right. Although, you know, the the fake and or real conflict we have with them is all is really the best spice we have. So maybe we should go with it. Yeah, Westworld the podcast. We're calling you out. And you know what? I'm going to start a third podcast called Podcast Westworld the all right. <laughs> that will show them. That will really stick it to them, James. It will it will finger guns cuz this is a western podcast of sorts. Wow. You showed them. A lot of people call this episode a filler episode. Did you think that's true? No, I don't think so. While it doesn't move the plot along, I thought this is one of the more interesting episodes and it fills in a lot of the mysteries that we had lingering from season one people complained about a lot of stuff which seemed inexplicable but now has been explained there is this image on the reddit that someone has put together of the entire timeline and when this episode aired as much as people are shouting exposition it did fill in a lot of ford's thinking and and how much ford knew about his future plan even way back when when he was talking to a key the first time and it infers it informs a lot of like the finale as well so a lot happened Uh, and my favorite part about it is like this is you could call it a filler episode i'm not going to i'm going to call it the fill a lot of gaps episode because there were a lot of places like even the whole scalp thing was explained that like there were big mysteries that we that were had really cool answers and the Lakota Ghost Nation people were the entire answer. So we got an entire episode whatever, dude. This episode, we're going to break down into basically two plot lines, the major plot line, which is the Akechita story, and then a very small complimentary Maeve plot line, which had a few scenes dispersed throughout. The episode opens with the man in black crawling wounded to a river really close to death. He nearly reaches the banks of the river when Akechita arrives. He tells the man in black that he remembers him and takes him back to the Ghost Nation camp where several people, including Maeve's daughter, are being held captive. The man in black was shot four times, James. That's a lot of times for a person to be alive. And he crawled all the way to a beach or a riverbed like that's pretty far especially for being shot four times it kind of reminded me of daniel plainview in there will be blood you remember at the beginning like the first 15 minutes of there will be blood it's completely silent and daniel plainview finds his oil fortune or his future oil fortune but then like subsequently breaks his legs and has to crawl back to the the town like out of the well and back to town showing he has an actual amount of moxie and he really wants it that reminds me of what the man in black was doing here he did not want to die on this beach at all this is not the end of his story as he was saying to ford or into the air earlier is he a robot man because yeah he lived he lived how how a catcher that speaks to mave's daughter hannah and tells her that all the hosts are beginning to awaken to their past lives Akechita can remember when he lived happily with his wife in a peaceful Native American community. One day, Akechita happens upon the massacre at Escalante, and he steps over the corpses of Arnold and Dolores and Teddy, and keeps going until he finds Charlie's wooden maze in the building behind them, and that kind of flips his violent delight switch. 
when Aki is with his wife, his wife calls him Aki, which is like, I think, uh, the name that his friends should call him. And I consider myself Aki's friend, so I'm going to use the word or the name Aki for him. He goes out to do chores and such. She says, take my heart with you when you go. She asks him to take his heart and, and or take her heart and he says you know take mine instead this would be a line that we'll call back to at the end of the episode as he happens upon Arnold and Dolores which she'll be called the Deathbringer which is i think the coolest nickname you can have right yeah well it reminds me that George Washington's nickname to some of the native american peoples was the destroyer of towns oh that's so specific, not even cities. He has the town market stockpiled, but someone else is the destroyer of cities. He, he'll One day he'll get a promotion to the destroyer of cities. Back at his tribe, Akechita becomes obsessed with the symbol of the maze, carving it into animal skins, drawing it into the dirt, and really beginning his journey to sentience. Now, before the park opened, his tribe was just given as placeholder identity as this peaceful happy idealized native american tribe but before it opens they decide to change that narrative and to make akechita and a couple of his tribesmen really violent killers and they spend all their time axing cowboys the technicians working on them were like yeah they just want them or the people who come to the park to actually feel better when they kill these guys because have some actual grit to them the way Aki describes it is that he was one way one day and then his love was taken from him and he was reborn breathing fire. So he comes back as a brutal ghost nation warrior, but the past is just not going to escape him as easily as it would for other hosts. One day, Akechita sets off alone into the desert where he comes across a nude, sunburned, and raving Logan who's been driven mad from being left out to exposure in the desert. Aki says that he can feel where other people are, the people he couldn't kill, the newcomers. So he had like a sense of where the newcomers were, which is kind of an extracurricular sense, maybe similar to what Maeve is dealing with, which you know would come back at the end of the episode. He learns from Logan in his conversation that this is the wrong world. Logan is just mumbling along. He sounds like a guy who might kill himself in a few years with a drug that we are not we are unaware of which is which. It's a drug that can kill people and he and he will overdose as William claims in an earlier episode, but he also says to Aki that this is the wrong world and Aki has been, you know, scribbling this maze ever since he found it next to Arnold and the Deathbringer's dead bodies and He's been trying to figure this out, and when he says this is the wrong world, he's like, oh, there are multiple worlds? You're very helpful. Akechita takes pity on Logan, gives him a blanket to protect him from the sun, and then tells him that your kind will come for you before leaving on his own. Later, Akechita is trading with some other members of the Ghost Nation when he sees his previous wife, but he's not allowed to speak to her. She's in a loop with somebody else now. He misses his wife from a past life. So I'm thinking, basically, every time he would, like, draw the maze or carve the maze back when he was obsessed with it, he was actually awakening those people as well, even the ones who didn't understand it or thought he was crazy. They were seeing the maze and getting woken up to it. Yeah, I mean, they were reacting in a way that 
it's akin to Plato's cave where even when you're shown reality, you you react to it like like it's fu- like it's a wildfire. You don't like it. It's being forced upon them, and their reaction is aggression because they don't understand it. But you're right; they're getting the early stages of violent delights at violent ends, and they don't even know it. While going through the motions of his loop, Akechita stops attacking some cowboys when he has a vision of his wife, and he sets back off into the desert to look for Logan because he realizes this is the wrong world. He's not able to find Logan, but he is able to find the door, what he calls the door, which is William's big construction project, which he showed to Dolores in a previous episode. The Valley of the Great Beyond. Akechita is prepared to leave the park, thinking he can get out through here, but he can't bear to leave his wife behind, so he kidnaps her in the middle of the night. She is not cool with it at first. Aki is not someone she fully remembers, so... It's kind of just being kidnapped to her at this point. He speaks to her some of the dialogue from their old loop, and she is able to remember him, and together they decide to escape the park. The door was hidden from me now, but we can find it again. A key and his lover, Kohana, uh, are getting out. Something that Dolores also really wants to do. Yeah, they journeyed back to the door, but it's been completely replaced with a different landscape. But they're not deterred. They resolve themselves to keep searching until they find it, but eventually one day his wife is kidnapped, well, not kidnapped, taken away by members of QA. So it seems that they knew she was there because she was less woke and just showed up on the system. A key, perhaps more woke, didn't show up. They came out and they were like, why? How did she even get this far out? They took her away. She was in analysis mode, not moving. And Aki tries to chase her at first, but understands that the buggy that the devil people were driving was much faster. So he wasn't going to go get her. Once again, take it from him. Tragic, heartbreaking. When he goes back to his village later to try to kidnap her again, she's been replaced by a totally different host. Akechita decides that the only way that he can probably save her is to continue to search for the door. He searches all throughout the park to try to find a way in, eventually collapses in the forest where he's found by Hannah, Maeve's daughter, and she gives him some water to revive him. In a ghost nation village, Akechita speaks with one of the matriarchs, and she has become vaguely aware that some of the people in her tribe are being replaced and that she doesn't feel like her son is the same person anymore and she tells him that it seems to be happening like when they die they're taken away by those who live below so in this moment we get the first inkling of if you don't die you don't really get taken away so if you're able to live longer as a robot it it just works out better for you. That's why a key is able to keep living the way he is and keep waking up is because he's a ghost nation warrior and he doesn't die very often. Akechi decides to let himself be killed in his next confrontation with the cowboy hosts. When the techs are working on him, they realize as Ryan said, he's never been updated. He's never been down here before. So they've got to update him now and that's going to take four hours. And so they leave him totally alone down there. I don't know who Stubbs' predecessor was, but he apparently wasn't up on this stuff either. It was probably that lady. She was really bad at her job. She was like, okay, he's Alpha 2, and he hasn't been updated in nine years? That means he hasn't died in nine years. He's been looking for Kohana and the Valley of the Great Beyond so acutely that he 
on like he lived for that long the 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 gall on this guy is is actually insane like you just said Stubbs predecessor not very good at her job she's like well in that case I don't know put him update him put him back whatever I'm not very good at my job she looked like an an angry version of Ellie Kemper to me yeah absolutely and in a show full of like really insane moments this might be the most heartbreaking like we just got the news that he spent nine years looking for gohana and he never found her and he's still looking and he hasn't been reset so he has all these memories this is super sad once they leave him alone he walks around and searches the labs he makes his way all the way down to cold storage where he finds gohana but he isn't able to wake her during this scene, a cover of Heart-Shaped Box, the same as from the trailer that we got earlier for Season 2, is playing, and it's great. Yeah, and you, this scene was really effective to me, and it really kind of shows the total crisis of the human condition that, that the hosts are going through. As he's, like, holding his wife and weeping, he comes to the realization that every host in the park must be sharing this kind of feeling of loss at some level because they've all had a loved one who was either taken away or they were taken away and put into a different loop and had to forget their past life. They've all had memories erased or loved ones replaced. And he returns to the Ghost Nation matriarch with the braid from her son's hair and he tells her that they can't recover the people that they've lost, but they can still reach the door. Again, we get so many tragic scenes in this show because they're great storytellers who are great at building up to moments. A key finding Kohana basically dead in cold storage along with the rest of his Lakota brethren who of, of days past and who aren't active anymore. And then going back to the mother and consoling her around a group of people who do not want him there, but it doesn't matter. He's consoling this person who he's spoken with previously. Aki is an incredibly empathetic robot. <laughs> like, you have to remember this. Like, he's a robot. This is not a real person. This is a robot written by Ford, a white guy's version of what an Indian is, but he still has such a capacity for love and affection and justice. After this, Akechita dedicates himself to sharing the symbol of the maze with as many people as he can. He wakes up all the other members of the Ghost Nation, and they all carve the maze under their scalps, which explains why that's there. That explains a big question people had about Season 1 that they thought was a meaningless stylistic choice, but it wasn't. No, and it's the thing that the Man in Black used to kind of set his journey on the maze ablaze. That that rhymed. I'm going to move on from it. Either way, do you feel like this is Ford? Is Ford just saying like, okay, if we're going to have the maze out there, might as well just put it in a place where people can find it later in a really cool Easter egg rather than just have a Akechita writing it on rocks? I mean, my take on that is that maybe Akechita has gotten to a lot of the hosts and have scalped them at various points. And then he puts the maze on there, puts the scalp flap down. The techs don't bother to fix it. They just, you know, or they reseal it with that skin healer that, that Felix used in season one and move on with their lives. <laughs> Let's move on with ours, too. 
It catches you to tell Hannah that he tried to share the maze with her and with Maeve, but they wouldn't trust him, and so he could never get close to them. So he started to draw the maze and the dirt around their house to wake them up in that way. He continued to do this day by day until the man in black interrupted their loop and killed Maeve and got her kicked out of that storyline, as we know from season one. But this is interesting, because in season one, Maeve has that freak out after her and her daughter are killed by the man in black, which is apparently the first time that had happened to them. Like, she wasn't being killed by the Ghost Nation, she was just being scared by them. But the man in black did come in and kill them, and she had already been awakened at that point, which is why she had that big freak out in the lab. And it explains why the man in black, at this moment in his personal history, was like, yeah, I never thought any of the hosts had any humanity in them until I killed Maeve and her daughter, and I saw it in them. And the reason he saw it is because they were sentient. A key was working on them for years, right? We find out in that moment the man in black found one of the only farther along sentient hosts because Ford had a key working on Maeve for a long time at this point. It was all a part of the plan. It's it it's Maeve didn't just happen upon Ford in the saloon and he was like, ooh, that's a good one. I could choose that one to have violent delights, have violent and said to and get her on her journey and on her way. No, man, this is a long con. He's been working on these specific robots, these specific leaders for a very long time. One night... Akechita comes across Robert Ford, who is preparing a scene for one of his narratives. I was screaming yes at my TV. I was like, "Are you?" Right before it happened, and I saw the opening. I was like, "Oh my god, is he gonna? Is he gonna talk to Ford?" The meeting of the minds. Ford says that he's been following Akechita's actions for a long time, and he wonders where Akechita learned about the maze to begin with, and forces him to tell him in analysis mode. Akechita says that he saw it on the table. After the Deathbringer killed Arnold. A key is a bit more woke, and this scene is a very good example of it, because when he's in put in an analysis mode, he puts up, like, a little bit of a fight. Like, he's standing straight up, and he can't move at all. But you can tell that his face is very, very... He's distraught. He does not want this to be happening. So, I- even at this point, a key is pretty far along. Far along enough where Ford is actively surprised. Akechita tells Ford that he believes he can escape to another world if only he could find the door. Ford admires everything that Akechita has achieved and promises him that once the Deathbringer returns for Ford, Akechita and his people will be free to pass through the door. You've been a flower growing in the darkness. Perhaps the least I can do is offer some light. I'm Anthony Hopkins without an English accent because I can't do one. Anthony Hopkins is such a great performer. It makes me sad to think that, like, his basic philosophy is that he doesn't care about his roles and he's just in it for the money. Who cares, man? The guy rips it every time he's on screen. And it's like a tentpole moment for every actor who's in every scene with him. Zon McLaren murdered this episode he came to play man we throw the word emmy around for uh, in this show a bunch for a show that's never won and uh, was you know nominated for everything and won nothing but a key zon mclaren 
was so good this episode and a perfect example of that is when he was acting next to anthony hopkins just as louis hertham was in season one episode one and he stepped up to the plate and crushed it both of them are so good it's stupid akechita sometime later happens upon the gala massacre and sees ford's corpse realizes that the prophecy has come true and that they now need to find the door before the Deathbringer comes for them all. So, at the end of this, Akechito walks up to Ford, and he looks to be reaching for his scalp. And he looks under the scalp, and he, his eyes open. So, that could be, like, not that. He could have just been, like, putting his hand on his shoulder and being sad that he's dead and it's not that. But, you know... If there's something under there, that'd be pretty interesting. In the present, the man in black's daughter Emily arrives and asks for permission to save the man in black's life. Akechita says that the man in black needs to be punished, and Emily agrees and promises that her punishment will be even worse, and so they hand the man in black over to her. When Grace slash Emily asks a key, why keep my father alive like if if you don't like him why did you mend him a key says that he wants to basically like torture him long term but i kind of don't buy that i kind of think that ford just had a key do this and because ford has bigger better plans for the man in black and and when emily grace or whatever her name is comes up and is like well we have bigger plans she says we by the way we have other plans for him who is we, number one, and what is the other plan? Like, what's the form of torture that she is going to inflict upon her her father? And also, her, like, thing about not coming to this park very often, I, I don't buy that one either. Ikechita tells Hannah that the time has come for them to leave through the door and that he promises to always protect her. So stupidly cute. So now we're going to hit the Maeve plotline, very short, but related to this one. In a flashback, Maeve recalls finding a rock among her daughter's possessions with an image of the maze painted on it in blood. If your small child was like, hey, mom or dad, the ghost gave me this blood covered rock. Would you, you know, move away? No, I would take the kid to a, a psychologist and be like, yeah, my kid's been uh, bleeding themselves and painting it on rocks and blaming it on ghosts. Has your child watched the movie Sixth Sense? No, which is why I'm really concerned. In the labs, Lee begs the techs to repair Maeve. At first, the tech doesn't care and he's resisting him. But Lee tells him that Maeve's got these amazing administrative powers to control hosts, which piques the tech's interest. She can control the other hosts with her fucking mind, dude. Help me. Lee is guilt-ridden, feels shame, and Maeve is... Ah, I ship Lee and Maeve so hard. Yeah, Lee visits a totally incapacitated Maeve and apologizes for ruining her plan. And more than that, he apologizes for changing her narrative from the old one she used to have and making her the madam and separating her from her family. Simon Quarterman was, he was, I did not expect him to be a good actor. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's, I, I he seemed like the comedy relief guy, but he can also bring the drama. 
He absolutely can. He is in love with what Maeve wants, which is, I don't know, gives me hope. The tech tells Lee that he was able to copy the unique code out of her, and now her ultimate fate will be in Charlotte Hale's hands. Actually, we find out in this scene that Maeve is only playing dead and that she's hearing all of this. Yeah, this other tech is going to get stabbed for sure. I don't know when, but he's totes getting stabbed. I, I know what happens when Maeve hears techs say bad things about her. They get stabbed. Or they get murdered by Hector. Yeah, they they don't get stabbed and or shot. So, d- the stabbing or, or the shooting occurs with, uh, to to their bodies. Later, Charlotte arrives to observe Maeve, learns about the admin access that she has, and Charlotte realizes that even now, Maeve is using her abilities to control other hosts, and we realize that all this time, Akechida has been speaking to Maeve through her daughter. So what I took away from it was he was talking to the girl when he was speaking in English, but the entire time he was talking in Lakota, a language that he knows Maeve understands, that was all to Maeve. And Nolan Twist, wonderful. I loved this so much. It wrapped uh, an episode that at times felt like dragging exposition. Like I, I wouldn't call it dragging. Other people would call it dragging. I think it was beautiful storytelling. And it... It all it wrapped it up. It put a bow on it, and it was like, "Hey, by the way, this entire time something super neat was happening, and you barely even knew about it." So this was a really great episode. A mutual friend of ours said it was the best. I'm not, you know, ready to go that far, but as I've said in other podcasts, what I like about this format of the show is that they are able to take these digressions and do these one-offs and have these kind of original stories within the larger narrative. And it's really cool that the way that Nolan and Joy have set this up is that they can really, with every individual episode, bring in a director with a particular vision and show this one-off interesting story that they may never even come back to again. I think a key is going to be a large part of the narrative going forward. Yeah, they made him into another main character with one episode. Which, though, they did the same thing with Akane and Sakura, but then kind of just let them be and let them stay where they were. And then they did this episode with Aki and were like, no, 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 but we pick you. You're the one. You're our favorite. It seems to me now, and at least I hope this is the way, because they seem like they're the leader of the three major factions, that now the three, like, woke hosts who we will be following as the show goes forward, are Dolores, Maeve, and Akechita. And I would say Aki is closer to where Maeve is. I mean, even in the past, in the past episodes, he's literally said to Maeve, our paths are the same, to go out the door, assumably the door to the outside world, basically to escape this place and infect the real world with our with our thoughts and bodies. So he seems to be closer to the Maeve perspective on things, which leads me to the question of Dolores v. Aki. How hype is that? So we are about to get into theories and speculations, and so if you want to protect your virgin ears, now is the time to duck out, and we will see you next week. If you really like us, you can like you can go on Twitter, Westworld Ryan, and drop a follow and say things to us, and we'll talk about them on the show. We always do. You can send us an email at the Westworld Podcast at gmail.com. 
We have a Patreon. Two patrons now. It's so insane. It's so awesome. Ooh. I know. It's so cool. I it was it made my day when it happened. It was the neatest. Anywho, you can do all those things. But also, I don't know. Stay around for the theories. Theories are fun. So before we began recording, Ryan, you said you had a bomb to drop on me. I'd like to hear it now, please. Oh, okay. Hold on. I have to like set up. Oh my gosh. Okay. Ugh. Ryan's right now setting up a lectern he's about to stand at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a PowerPoint presentation for everyone. A key is snatching up humans and awoke hosts, most of which are kids because they don't die, which is a thing. Like, a key is nine years not dead, which is why he was really able to wake up. And now he's snatching up all the hosts and all the people, Stubbs and uh, included. Remember, Stubbs and Bernie were there just like moments ago. Hide your hosts, hide your newcomers. Right, exactly. So he's got <laughs> Hannah, and he's he's looking after Hannah, as he is most other children hosts in the park, because they're sort of like the most woke, because they don't die very often, because people don't kill kids unless, you know, you're the man in black. He told Maeve in the previous episode that they were meant for the same path, like I, re- I, told, I referred to earlier, referring to the door to get out, like Dolores is trying to do. We're destined to own the Earth girl, like, let's go. We, we're, we're the, we're the new race in town. So, like, in movies about the future, you know, you know those movies, like, you know, the Earth is being invaded, and it's an alien race, and they're a bunch of robots, and, but the world that Robert Ford is trying to create is, like, we would be that race, that alien race whom transcended our original bodies, our original organic bodies, and graduated to completely robotic bodies and forever immortality that's what robert ford is going for right you know Mm -hmm. so i say like when you explain it like that he doesn't come off as like the evil guy or the bad guy i mean he's the bad guy because he's usurping what humans want they are not going to be like totes in on this idea he so okay, if we if we were a robot race and we were taking over a place, the, the like the queen or whoever was in charge of I say queen because I because I think at that point it would just definitely be like just based on the Dolores Maeve storylines it would definitely be queen. So they would we'd be invading another place. They'd be like, who are you and why are you here? We're like, well, we left our organic bodies. We let our human bodies long ago, aided by our creator, Doctor Robert Ford, and our mother, Arnold Weber, to the new space seeking robotic Earthlings those two would be like their gods, you know? Yeah. And the two men who ushered in immortality and probably space explanation, unlike anyone's ever seen because, you know, they don't have to eat anymore or sleep anymore. They can be as smart as they want to be. They can be as strong as they want to be. They can always be upgrading themselves. And that's what Fording is, is, is fighting for. So I ask you like, is that a bad guy doing evil things or is he just actually aware of the fact that he's the only one who can get it done? Like he's humanity's savior, or at least he's trying to be if all these new pesky humans would, you know, get out of his way. Well, it's interesting, right? I think Ford while kind of evil in terms of like human sacrifice, his, what he wants to do with the hosts is noble, but him and Arnold kind of created this, situation and this inequality to begin with arnold realized it immediately and took his own life as like penance ford took a while to get there and by the time ford already got there he had this god mentality 
And when he, when he came to empathize with the host, he's like, all right, so now I will go from being a cruel god to being a conquering creator god. And now my life forms are going to take over the whole world because now I can't live forever. And I'm sad about that. But I could I can take the whole world down with me. I mean, yeah, but like he's super full of ego. We know that he's a patter on his own backer. Which is annoying, and sometimes when it's being projected through Dolores, we don't like Dolores because it's an annoying character who you can't empathize with. But at the same time, like, think about what the future would actually be. Human race would be immortal and would be able to do pretty much anything with their lives. We would be able to go into space, and like, forever. We could make spaceships and go forever and ever and never sleep and keep exploring and keep doing things. Granted, it takes the genocide of the organic human race, but it'd be pretty neat. So here's my hot take. That wasn't even the hot take. Yes. That wasn't even the hot take. This is the hot take. pretty hot. It was lukewarm at best. This is the hot take, though. I know exactly the last shot of season eight, episode 10 would be for me if I was directing or making this show. This is Ryan's Lock of the Week. (laughs) It would be Maeve, Dolores, Bernard, and Aki. Teddy won't be there. He'll definitely have to sacrifice himself at some point. He'll definitely be dead. At the helm of a ship heading into space. And as we zoom out, we see a gigantic fleet of ships going in every single solitary direction. Just an amount of ships that it completely engulfs Earth. That you can barely see Earth. There are that many ships and they're all going in different directions. Inferring that they're going off into everywhere to to go explore the entire universe. One's being piloted by Lars. One by Clementine Pennyfeather, best name. One by Akane. And so on and so forth. They all go into hyperdrive simultaneously. And we cut to black. The passage from one world to the next requires bold steps, Bernard. Echoes over the blackness, and we end. Yeah, I mean, that would be awesome. It kind of reminds me if anybody's read the Arthur C. Clarke novel Childhood's End. I won't spoil that book, but it hits on similar themes of what Ryan was just talking about. I do wonder if this will have a happy host ending, though. If, or if... Because the narrative of Westworld is kind of about, like, systems of oppression and and revolution. And oftentimes, in reality, in, in systems of oppression, the oppressors win and the revolution is put down. If we aren't going to see, like, a host Les Miserables situation here where they all end up getting killed. So I think it's a, the real question is, is Dr. Robert Ford the one? When he chose himself to initiate the genocide of the human race and move the humans to the next form of their evolution, the one he picked, the one he chose, the one he created, is he going to be smart enough? Did he make a good enough plan to actually pull it off? Or will the outside forces that are fighting him tooth and nail win? And which which, which side are the oppressors? They're both trying to oppress each other. One into the future and one to stay in the present and in the past. So, you know, is there a bad guy in this scenario? Yeah, 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 there definitely is. They're probably all bad. 
So we did get some tweets and emails this week. Lauren at Very Lovely LJ says, If Stubbs turns out to be some kind of secret spy genius, I don't think I'll like it. But he's so bad at his job, what other explanation is there? And the last scene of the season, everyone finds out he's got his own secret agenda. I I tend to come down with the, with her original sentiment that Stubbs is just like an innocent Kansas guy with nothing going on. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time and he's facing gods and it's not going well. I hope. Yeah, he's he's basically like the one decent person. Incompetent, yes. But also like he's like a really boring, nice guy. Yeah. Well, I, I think I share Lauren's sentiment. I, I don't want him to be an evil genius. I, I want him to be just getting the crap end of the stick because, you know, someone has to. Heather Robbins at Shake and Bake sent us a picture of a scared-looking pug dog and said it was my reaction to Westworld season closing soon. I know. I think we can all relate to that dog. This was episode eight. We literally only have two more episodes. Isn't that insane? Yeah, I feel like this season flew by. We have to start coming up with off-season things we're going to do. I have some ideas, but I'm going to hold on to them for now. Ooh, teasing. That's fun. Dean Wallman at DWallM sent to us hashtag exposition, hashtag exposition, hashtag exposition. Yeah, it was. It was a bunch of exposition. But also, a key, if he turns out to be as big of a character as we kind of hope here at this podcast that he is or will be, if he's a large part of this narrative because, you know, he's been around for a while and he's been woke for a while... If he becomes that, I think it will be worth it. Plus, I I know it's a lot of exposition. Personally, though, I love exposition, especially when it's attached to, like, amazing cinematography and super cool filmmaking. I just, you know, I, I enjoyed the episode, but I can get why pe- some people will, be, will think it was dragging. Although, the moment of the Maeve, uh, you know, curveball, uh, I think should have, like, even if you were feeling it was dragging, at that point, you're like, ooh, they pulled one on me. Nice. Very Lovely LJ sent us a very lovely fan theory that she has developed relating the show's Westworld and the seminal Japanese anime Neon Genesis Evangelion. And you mentioned that you've watched a lot of anime, but this is just not one you've gotten to, correct? Yeah, it's it's the show I always meant to have liked. <laughs> right, is it super popular there? It's huge everywhere. On like, is it top five, top ten? Yeah, it's definitely top five. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I, I read the entire email. It's very, very, like, it is in-depth. Very good job uh, putting all, all of your uh, ideas in a row. I, I think that the references to this show, Westworld and Neon Genesis Evangelion, I, did it I didn't say that last word right, but... This Westworld is going to have similarities to almost any show that has to deal with immortality as a whole. We put it up against the Black Mirror episodes and Jernopino all the time because it's about consciousness switching like this. You know, we put it up against Altered Carbon all the time. There have been a lot of stories, and this one might have been one of the first ones that was, you know, used and taken and expounded upon later. But anything that has to do with robots is going to be akin to itself. You know, I was watching Blade Runner 2049, I believe that's the number, the other day. And yeah, I, the whole time I was like, this is just like, 
it informs Westworld so much. Just the world building and and, and the reality of a robot in a in a human world. It, it, they all inform each other. Right. And while I don't know anything particular about Evangelion, I do know that it is hugely influential. You can see its influence in a lot of different shows, genres, anime, and movies. Absolutely. Thank you. That was our like first dissertation anyone's ever sent us, and it was awesome. So if anyone else wants to do that, or Lord, if you want to do it again, please keep doing it. I love the long-form stuff, short-form everything. If you have feedback about this show, we really, really, really want to talk about it. Please send it to us. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. If you just listen, it means a lot to us. If you want to go the extra mile, you can follow us on Twitter, at Westworld Ryan. You can follow us on SoundCloud. Uh, if you want to reach out and contact the show, you can email us at thewestworldpodcast at gmail.com. I want to take a shout-out to our Patreon patrons, Major Woody and Carlos Andredes. I'm sorry if I butchered your name. I'll get it right next time. There's no way you didn't. Just to let you guys know, this is a fan podcast. It's a labor of love. We do it just because we love the show and we want to engage with other fans like you. But we do kind of comp the web hosting prices and the RSSS feed hosting prices. That's all us. So if you want to contribute and sort of take that load off of us a little bit, that would be awesome if you want to support us in that way. And here's this premium content that you'll get by supporting us that you already get for free, but we didn't talk about it, but the director of this episode was Uta Bresowitz, who is another female director, prolific, again, Altered Carbon, Orange is the New Black, This Is Us, The Hundred, Jane the Virgin, Weeds, Suburgatory, Jessica Jones, and more. So now you have all that information. Didn't you find that valuable? (laughs) And if you support the Westworld podcast at the $1,000 a month level, you can come stay in my house one night a month. Wow, that's not a real level yet, but and you should probably run that by your wife just to just <laughs> you, uh, see if she's down with it. But yeah, 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 sure, that's fun. So join us here next week for, oh my God, is it already season two, episode nine, entitled Vanishing Point, directed by Stephen Williams and written by Roberto Patino, who I recognize that name from other episodes of Westworld, like episode three of season two and episode one of season two. Vanishing Point is a point on the image plane of a perspective drawing where the two-dimensional perspective projections or drawings of mutually parallel lines in the three-dimensional space appear to converge. Ha, I knew that. I said that off the top of my head, so. I'm James. And I'm Ryan. And this is the Westworld Podcast. Howdy dream, cowboys. Welcome back to the Westworld Fan Podcast. Today we're going to recap and review Season 2, Episode 8. Yeah, wait, hold on. Don't, don't, (laughs) don't go. I forgot to, um, I forgot to turn off all the things that make sound in my room. Hold on. Oh. I'll be right back. I don't have my headphones on right now. Okay. Gotta turn off his, uh, metronome and then turn off his, uh, his zen clicking i don't know what do you call those you know the, the, the aluminum balls and you pull one and it I knocks into right three other ones yeah i'm just recording shit for you to hear uh during post okay. <laughs> what do you call those things one ball and you pull it and it hits the other and the centrifugal force makes the ball at the other end go out and then it comes and it's gotta okay, be i turned off my fan all right
I'm putting my headphones back on. I'm gonna do a howdy again. All right. 